welcome you to our lunchtime seminar series, which is organized by the Changing Character of War Center. Uh, my name is Kate Tatra, and I'm postdoctoral research fellow at, uh, at the center. Uh, this term, uh, the seminars are uh, mostly focused on some of the topics or themes uh, of uh, the changing character of uh, conflict platform. This is an interdisciplinary project which uh, looks into changes uh, in conflict in five dimensions, such as actors involved in conflict or impact on civilians or methods used in conflict. And uh, today, uh, uh, one of our, uh, our topics will be uh, conflict in Syria. And uh, as I said before, uh, we, in changing conflict platform, we aim to be interdisciplinary. So far here, we had people, uh, we had speakers who were practitioners, but also speakers from various disciplines such as political science, anthropology, etc. And today, the discipline which will uh, shed light on Syria, on conflict in Syria, and the legal framework of providing relief uh, for the law. Uh, I would like to uh, welcome two speakers today, uh, Dapo Akande and Manuela uh, Gilliard. Uh, Dapo Akande is a professor of public international law at the University, uh, University of Oxford. I'm sorry. Uh, he is a co director with ELA. Uh, sorry, I got PhD from uh, Essex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his research interest uh, lies within the field of general uh, international law. Uh, he uh, was advisor uh, to several international organizations uh, such as the United Nations and the African Union and he has extensive list of publications. Manuel Kiliar uh, uh, also worked and advised several international uh, uh, organizations such as United Nations uh, or, international, uh, or International Committee of the Red uh, Cross. Um, she is a senior research fellow in, in ELAC, associate fellow in Chapman House, and also research fellow in the individualization of war uh, project at the European uh, University Institute. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think we're going to be a bit interdisciplinary um, between us. We're going to talk about the law, but we're also going to bring in some um, operational dimensions. And um, we've been working on this topic of cross-border humanitarian relief operations for a number of years. It started, a um, <coughs> cooperation started, I think, in towards 2013, when I was based at the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in New York in their policy branch. And um, the humanitarian actors were trying to, to grapple with the extremely challenging um, access situation in Syria. And I think um, one of the defining characteristics of the humanitarian response in, um, in Syria has been the difficulty from the outset in actually obtaining access to the country and delivering. And there are a range of reasons for it. There's active hostilities. There have been attacks that have been targeted against humanitarian actors or that have incidentally um, injured humanitarian actors and consignment. There's been sh shifting complex front lines, a proliferation of actors holding territory with whom it's necessary to, to negotiate access, and also the instrumentalization of humanitarian assistance by, by all actors on the ground. However, 
One key aspect of the challenges has been the intransigence of the government of Syria in allowing relief operations, and in particular, those providing medical assistance. So against this background, um, the directors of a number of UN humanitarian agencies in New York were really trying to understand the legal framework better. And it seems amazing that in 2003, directors need to understand the legal framework regulating humanitarian relief operations better. What have we been doing until 2003? The reality, sorry, 2013. The reality is that humanitarian uh, action wasn't really addressed through the lens of the law that much. It was seen as a far more operational issue. And a point I always make is that it is extremely important for us to stop and understand the law better. But on the ground, that's only one element. And it's incumbent upon humanitarian actors to continue to treat it as an operational issue. But that's why in 2003, in New York, there was a need to understand the law better. And initially, the question was framed very much in terms of what are the rules regulating cross-border relief operations? Why? Because at that time, um, as we were saying, Damascus was unwilling to allow relief operations in, and humanitarian actors were looking at whether it would be possible to respond from neighboring states into areas of territory that were not under the control of Damascus at that point. So it was very much framed as a question on what does the law say with regard to cross-border operations. And I think as a matter of law, the cross-border dimension was a bit of a red herring, quite frankly. And it, it, instead, what was important was to step back and say, look, the modalities per se are not important. What is important is the need to see to what extent these realities on the ground affect the basic steps of the rules, and in particular, the question of the consent of the territorial state. Is the consent of Damascus still necessary if the operations are for part of the territory not under its control that can be reached by a neighboring state? That was the question. Um, and. Um, that question led to the elaboration of, of the document that Dapo and I co-authored on the basis of a series of expert workshops that, in fact, looks at the entirety of the law regulating humanitarian relief operations in situations of armed conflict. We started off with a very narrow discussion looking at whose consent is required and what amounts to arbitrary withholding of consent but realized that it was necessary to look at the entirety of the rules. Um, <clears throat> and it led to, to this uh, document. So what we're going to do, is I'm going to um, outline the basic rules of the law regulating relief operations. And then I'm going to hand over to Dapo, who's going to zoom in on some of the issues that were particularly pertinent in, in Syria. So the basic rules um, are actually pretty straightforward and are the same in both international and non-international armed conflict. The primary responsibility for meeting the needs of civilians lies with the party that has effective control of the civilians. And this is something I always have to remind humanitarian actors. That's where primary responsibility lies. 
if this party is unable or unwilling to meet the needs, then offers to conduct relief operations that are exclusively humanitarian and impartial in nature may be made. The consent of the territorial state is required not to be arbitrarily withheld. Now the consent is rather states have no leeway to withhold consent in two situations. The first is uh, situations of occupation. If um, there are unmet needs in situations of occupation, the occupying power isn't meeting them and offers to conduct humanitarian relief operations that are impartial and natures are made, the occupying power has no margin of maneuver, no leeway to not agree to relief operations. And the second instance in which um, states have no discretion to withhold consent is where the Security Council has acted, taken a binding decision essentially requiring them to agree to operations. And we're going to turn to that later because that's exactly what happened in relation to Syria. So those are the three steps. Consent not to be arbitrarily required, not to be arbitrarily withheld. Once consent has been obtained, all parties must allow and facilitate the rapid and impeded passage of humanitarian relief operations. Now, operationally, most of the problems actually occur at this fourth stage. Organizations have been given the green light to operate, but then states and organized armed group fail to do what is required, what is necessary, in order for humanitarians to actually operate. Um, however, Syria has very much shone a light on the first set of questions, whose consent is required and what amounts to arbitrary withholding of consent. So we're going to focus on, on those elements. Okay. Thank you. So as um, when you said, we're going to focus on some of those elements that of the law or of the legal framework that proved to be particularly problematic in, in Syria, um, starting with this question of whose consent is, is required. So we say consent is required, but the consent must not be arbitrarily withheld. So the first question is whose consent is required. The second issue that arose in Syria and which has continued to be a, a question of, of discussion in terms of the law is what does it mean to say that consent has been arbitrarily withheld? Are there any criteria by which one can determine that consent has been arbitrarily withheld? That's the second issue I will talk about. And then the third issue that I want to talk about is the question of the legal consequences for um, unlawfully impeding access, including unlawfully withholding consent or arbitrarily withholding consent. So what does the law say? As Manu indicated, um, the critical question in Syria in relation to cross-border relief operations was the question of whether humanitarian actors could operate in Syria without the consent of the Syrian government. What if you follow these steps and you say, well, the Syrian government has acted unlawfully in withholding consent? What were the consequences of that as a matter of law? Consequences for the Syrian government, and consequences for humanitarian actors that might actually want to operate within Syrian territory. So if I go back to this question of um, whose consent. Um, so we say consent is, and I'll just take a, a sort of half step back. We say consent is required in order for humanitarian actors to conduct 
relief operations in the territory of the state. Where does that actually come from as a matter of law? You see this requirement of consent in the additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions. So there are two additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions of 1977. One of those uh, additional protocols deals with international armed conflicts. The other deals with non-international armed conflicts. In both, you have provisions on humanitarian relief operations. And in both sets of provisions, you see this requirement of consent written explicitly. What is clear is that in the context of international armed conflicts, it talks about these operations being conducted subject to the agreement of the parties concerned. And in international armed conflicts, the parties are, of course, states. So it's going to be the consent of, of a particular state that is, is required. Um, in a non-international armed conflict, we're talking about a conflict between a state on the one hand and usually a non-state armed group on the other. There could also be two non-state non armed groups. And in um, the, the provision in Additional Protocol 2, which deals with non-international armed conflicts, it talks about these operations being undertaken subject to the consent of the high contracting party concerned. However, what if you have a non-international armed conflict whereby some of the territory, and this is what was going on in Syria, some of the territories under the effective control of a non-state group, and then this operation can come in across the border without passing through the territory that is controlled by, by the state. The complication that arises as a matter of law is that if you look at the Geneva Conventions of 1949, you have a provision, Common Article 3, so common to all four Geneva Conventions. And Common Article 3 provides that impartial, an impartial humanitarian body may offer its services to the parties to the conflict. Okay. And some people interpret Common Article 3 as implicitly, or, or interpreted Common Article 3 as implicitly, allowing humanitarian relief operations to be conducted as long as the party to whom the offer was made accepts the offer. So in their view, if the offer is made to a non-state group uh, and that non-state armed group accepts the offer, then the humanitarian body is able to operate regardless of the position that's adopted by, by the state concerned, as long as the, the operation is in transiting through the territory or territory that's controlled by, by the government. But if you look at the provision that I talked about earlier in the 1977, the later protocol, it's much more explicit. It talks about these operations subject to the consent of the high contracting party concerned. In other words, it identifies whose consent is required and it, it identifies that as being the consent of the state, the high contracting party that is concerned. And also, when you think about the interpretation that was given to Common Article 3, which seems to do away with the requirement of the consent of the state, this seems to be a very significant infringement of the territorial sovereignty um, of the state concerned. And it would be odd if that requirement, or sorry, that uh, recognition of the state's territorial sovereignty was just done away with in this implicit way in in common article, common article 3. In the process that Manu was referring to in, in uh, coming up with this guidance, we 
had a, a series of expert meetings here in Oxford. The, the process, by the way, was um, one that was conducted, if you like, under the auspices of, is that the right way to put it, of, of UN OCHA, um, so the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. They commissioned and published the report. Um, in the meetings that we had here in Oxford, the majority of experts were not persuaded by this interpretation that says that um, you do not need the consent of the state of the state concerned. In particular, because it would mean that in certain situations, if you don't need the consent of the state concerned, that would suggest that um, um, there will be circumstances where no high contracting parties because there's only one state that's involved in that, in that conflict. So it would more or less read away this provision in, in the additional protocol. So the position that we adopted in this document, the Oxford Guidance, um, is one that we think gives due weight to general principles of international law concerning territorial sovereignty, but also to the state's responsibility towards the civilian population. So the consent of the state is required, but it has a more limited range of grounds for withholding consent uh, to relief operations where it is intended for civilians that are in territory that are under the control or under the effective control of an organized armed group. So that's this question of whose consent is required, the conclusion being it's the consent of the state party, even if the state party does not have effective control of the territory. One issue that arose in Syria was also the question of, well, who do we regard as the state party? Particularly at a point in time in which a number of uh, countries recognized what had hitherto been described as the opposition, recognized them as the legitimate representatives of the Syrian people. So there you have questions of recognition. Who should we regard as the government, given that we now say that these groups are the legitimate representatives of, of the people? It's important to remember, though, that despite this pronouncement, and it was a collective pronouncement by a number of states, of, of sort of recognition of some sort of the opposition, at no stage, actually, did most of these states recognize the opposition as the government. They continued to recognize the regime, government, whatever you want to call it, that was headed by Bashar al-Assad as the government um, in the UN and also in, in bilateral relations they were regarded as the government. So though there was some confusion caused by this announcement that these were the legitimate representatives of the legal people, of the Syrian people, I'm sorry, um, at no point actually were they legally recognized as the government. So the question whose consent takes you back to the government of Bashar al-Assad. So as Manu said, consent is required, but it must not be arbitrarily withheld. The next question then is, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that consent is being arbitrarily withheld? I think it's important to note, first of all, that this requirement that consent must not be arbitrarily withheld is not one that is stated in terms in those treaty provisions that I referred to. So those provisions in the 1977 protocols do not have a reference to arbitrary withholding of consent. You won't find it there if you look at it. However, this principle that prohibits arbitrary withholding of consent 
can be derived um, from a number of uh, a number of, of areas which are consonant with the rules of treaty interpretation. So first of all, that principle is derived from the need to provide an effective interpretation of these treaties. And this is significant because if you look at the treaty provisions, they say on the one hand that if certain conditions are fulfilled, these humanitarian relief operations shall be carried out. So that's the first thing. But on the other hand, they say subject to the consent of the agreement of the state concerned. So they shall be carried out if we meet certain conditions, but subject to the agreement. And what that requires is some degree of balancing exercise between the, the shall and the consent. And the arbitrary withholding of consent principle is one which gives effect to all aspects of those provisions and doesn't render any part of them redundant. Secondly, this principle comes from the drafting history of these provisions. So if you look at the discussions in the drafting of these provisions, you can see that there was already at that time this suggestion that consent must not be arbitrarily withheld. And then thirdly, this um, principle that says consent must not be arbitrarily withheld comes from practice that is subsequent to the adoption of the protocols. So it comes from um, the way in which uh, states and other actors have interpreted these principles. And in the context of Syria, we start to see, in particular, in the discussions in the Security Council, we start to see references being made to arbitrary denial of humanitarian access, likewise in the General Assembly, and likewise in the Human Rights Council. But what does that mean? Consent must not be arbitrarily withheld. What does that actually mean? So um, in this guidance, we take the view that this notion of arbitrariness has, has three meanings. Consent will be arbitrarily withheld in one of three circumstances. First of all, if it is withheld, in circumstances that would result in a violation of that state's obligations under international law with respect to the civilian population in question. So if by denying consent, the state would be violating its obligations under international law. For example, if it would be violating the prohibition of, of starvation as a method of warfare, for example, if it is acting in a manner which is discriminatory, which would violate the rules that um, prohibit adverse distinction. Um, it would be arbitrary in circumstances, for example, the new referred to um, medical assistance. So withholding consent to medical relief operations on the ground that the medical supplies can be used to treat enemy wounded combatants would be in violation of IHL because the wounded and the sick must receive, uh, to the fullest extent, practicable medical care that is required by their condition. So if you're violating these rules of IHL, that would be an arbitrary withholding of consent. Secondly, um, even where the state might have, if you, have, if you like, though we don't quite use this expression, legitimate reasons for withholding consent, the withholding of consent must not violate the principles of necessity and proportionality. In other words, the withholding of consent must not go beyond that which is necessary to give effect to those concerns. Um, and then thirdly, 
the manner in which consent is withheld might also be relevant. So the third uh, limb of arbitrariness would be where consent is withheld in a manner that is unreasonable or unjust or lacking in, in predictability. So that's, that goes to the manner of, of withholding consent. So that's the second point, uh, this issue of consent must Consent is required, but it must not be arbitrarily withheld. The third issue is the question of consequences. And this was, I think, in Syria, one of the main reasons why, as Manu was saying, the humanitarian community was trying to work out what the legal framework was. The question is, okay, so what happens, or at least what does the law allow in circumstances where a state is acting unlawfully? So you get to the point where you say the Syrian government is arbitrarily withholding consent or arbitrarily denying, uh, impeding um, humanitarian operations. Then what? So consequences um, can be viewed from two perspectives. So first of all, you have the consequences for the actor, whether it's a state or an individual, who is acting unlawfully. So what are the consequences for them? And then secondly, consequences from the perspective of the humanitarian actors who actually want to engage in the, in the operations. Um, and I will stick to the, the second. Consequences for humanitarian organizations who want to carry out these operations. What can they actually do? Here, as a matter of law, it's important to separate out the position of States and international organizations, on the one hand, acting as humanitarian uh, actors, if you like. So states and international organizations looking to engage in humanitarian operations, on the one hand. And then non-governmental organizations, on the other hand. Their legal positions are distinct. How so? For states and international organizations, if they go into the territory of another state without the consent of the other state, they would, in principle, be acting in breach of international law because they would be violating the territorial sovereignty of the other state um, because they have these obligations on them under international law to respect the territorial sovereignty of other states. NGOs, on the other hand, do not have that obligation as a matter of international law. So they're not bound by the principle of territorial sovereignty as a matter of international law. But of course, as a matter of domestic law, they would be acting illegally. So if they were to go into Syria, then they'd be breaching Syrian law, uh, possibly even Syrian, and subject to, to, to the criminal law of, of Syria, at least in, in theory. So you have to separate out those two actors. For states and international organizations, just in summary, the quest, as a matter of international humanitarian law, there is no rule that would allow them to go in, even if say the Syrian government is acting on both However, as a matter of international law more generally, there might in extreme circumstances be cases where you could rely on what you might call defenses or what in international law we call circumstances precluding wrongfulness. So defense to an action that's otherwise illegal. And the two that would be most relevant in this circumstance are necessity, and secondly, what we call counter countermeasures. So necessity, D 
deals with circumstances where you are taking action to um, either prevent or put to an end um, something that would cause a grave and imminent peril. And here the argument would be that it's, uh, it's a grave and imminent peril um, to the international community as a whole. So that's the essence of necessity. The essence of countermeasures is that you are acting unlawfully to respond to action that is, in the first place, unlawful. There are some complications in relation to both of those arguments, their conditions that we would have to meet, not least that they wouldn't justify action that amounts to the use of force. I'm going to talk about some of those issues later on, but we'll be back to me. Sorry, I was yeah. listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dapo. So what happened? What happened in Syria? Um, what happened was that the Security Council took the unprecedented step in the summer of 2014 of adopting a Security Council that effectively imposed the humanitarian relief operations on Syria. It's Security Council Resolution 2165, and here the Security Council adopted this binding decision that UN humanitarian agencies and their implementing partners are authorized to use routes across conflict lines and across borders to deliver in, uh, in Syria. So in a way, what Security Council did was to set aside the rules of IHR requiring the consent and saying these operations shall be conducted. So that's what the Security Council did in 2014, and this resolution has been renewed every year until now. Um, so what happened after the Security Council adopted the resolution? What happened in practice? It's very interesting. Um, so it was both cross-line operations within Syria by humanitarian actors who were operational in Syria. They were authorized to deliver commodities cross-line and also from neighboring states cross-border. So cross-line was never used. I have gone back um, to speak to the humanitarian actors in the region. I went last year. I've just been there. And when I spoke to the humanitarian actors and I said, why didn't you do any cross-line? Why didn't you even try? The Security Council didn't authorize that. They didn't even realize that there was exactly the same authorization. It was never tried. Now, we could discuss why it was never tried, whether there might have been a small window of opportunity when Damascus could have gone with it. It was obvious then. It wasn't because I turned up in 2017, three years on, that suddenly they could start doing it cross-line. Um, with regard to cross-border, what the Security Council also did was establish um, a UN monitoring mechanism at three of the four named crossings, and UN relief consignment would go through these, be monitored, be downloaded from one truck, and then loaded up into Syrian truck, and really significant deliveries were carried out in this manner. Um, not only did the resolution make it possible to actually bring commodities into the country for these opposition-held areas, it also had a very interesting indirect effect because, precisely because it wasn't 
lawful for UN agencies to conduct relief operations without the consent of Syria, it would have been very difficult for them to base themselves in neighboring states, in, in Jordan and, and Turkey, to do that, because you also need the, the consent of these states. The fact that there was this resolution authorizing the relief operations made it possible for UN actors to establish what have been referred to as hubs, so in Jordan and in Turkey, from which they carried out activities, but also coordinated the activities of a range of other humanitarian actors, NGOs, and carried out important coordination functions in terms of negotiating access from modalities with the Turkish and Jordanian authorities, troubleshooting, um, dealing with pooled funds, all the, the nitty-gritty, the mechanics of humanitarian action, which are really important, and which they would not have been able to do absent this resolution, because the, the, the operations weren't lawful. So it was very interesting last year to speak to the humanitarian actors there and to understand, interesting, cross-line didn't happen at all. Cross-border did occur and was in, important, both in terms of the commodities that came in and also because it allowed these hubs to be established, and because it also meant that it was possible for um, NGOs um, to um, partner up with local actors within Syria for the delivery of services. Because something that we have overlooked a bit, focusing on the law of IHL, is we focus on commodities, because that's what the law looks at. But in terms of humanitarian response, the services are as important, if not more, than the commodities in some instances. And this resolution offered this umbrella of protection for humanitarian actors to also go out and team out with local partners for the delivery of services. So this has been um, the effect of this resolution. Um, <clears throat> 2017, it was, it's up for renewal every December. 2017, last year, it looked as though the circumstances on the ground were such that it was not going to be renewed. That was very much the concern about by humanitarian actors. Why? Because Russia had indicated that because um, of the number of reconciliation agreements that had been concluded between Damascus and local groups, the areas had been uh, pacified and there was no more need humanitarian action. Now that was not in fact the reality on the ground, as I said right at the outset. Humanitarian assistance has been um, instrumentalized by all the actors on the ground and that was very much what we saw uh, following these reconciliation agreements. They're essentially capitulation agreements um, after siege, starve, surrender, and even once there had been a surrender, um, humanitarian assistance was still being used um, both to reward communities that had surrendered peacefully and to continue to punish those that hadn't. So definitely reconciliation hadn't removed the need for continuing cross-border relief operations. And then there were also, you might have heard of this, allegations of diversion of the relief goods that they were going to um, some of the designated terrorist groups there. So those were the dynamics um, this time last year. Eventually, the resolution was adopted, unchanged, uh, people were relieved, um, and they were renewed until January, of beginning of next year, and we're now discussing renewal once again, and it's very interesting to see, because the political dynamics are extremely different this year. While last year, 
Russia was digging its heels in as to whether or not it was going to um, authorize a renewal. This year, Russia's actually in favor of extending the arrangements once more. Why? It is very heavily in involved in the last significant pocket of territory under opposition control in the northwest and is keen to keep things as stable as possible, pending resolution of the situation there. And obviously, relief operations are a piece of the puzzle in keeping the situation as uh, calm as possible. So it looks as though the resolution should pass. But again, as a matter of law and practice, what has changed in the past year is the situation on the ground, and in particular in the south. So on the border with Jordan, what we have seen is, yes, we still had this resolution in place that um, authorized cross-border operations without the need for serious consent. But now, territory that was just over the border from Jordan under opposition control has now fallen back within the control of the government of Syria. So what does that mean as a matter of law and practice in terms of the relief operations? Yes, you still have the resolution authorizing them, but on the other side of the border, you have Syria. So what do we do as a matter of law, both in terms of the operations going through, but also the indirect assistance that the UN is providing, as I was saying, to the, the humanitarian <coughs> actors on the ground. Um, and I'm thinking of passing it over to DAPO for the law, and then perhaps saying a, a few words in terms of, of the policy, what's happened in the South, and what does this mean for the Northwest? So, I mean, imagine if the resolution were not to be renewed. Um, you would go back to the general legal framework that we were talking about earlier. So you would sort of need the consent of the Syrian government, and the question would be, would they give their consent? Let's imagine that they don't give their consent. Then that would mean that, except in those exceptional cases that I talked about, there'd be no legal basis for being able to, to go in. Even if um, there was some legal basis as a matter of general international law, these sort of defenses that I talked about to be able to conduct these operations, first of all, you'd have practical difficulties anyway going into territory that's controlled by the Syrian government without the consent of Syria. Secondly, for international organizations in particular, I'm thinking particularly of the UN, they have their own legal sort of structure or framework and they operate in accordance with the mandate of the institution, which will be contained in the institution's constituent instrument. And so even if as a matter of general international law, it was lawful that the defense, organizations will not operate outside their own mandate. And so in the case of the UN in particular, I think the view that's likely to be taken is that it would not be within our mandate to operate without the consent of, of the Syrian government. And so in terms of being able to go in and provide direct assistance, um, that would probably be the answer. Then the question would be, what about doing all the indirect work that Manu was referring to? In other words, doing all the coordination, doing all the, um, if you like, the sort of uh, um, bilateral funding arrangement, doing all of those things that do not involve the organization itself going in 
but where it's sort of stepping back and acting as a coordinator, would it be entitled to do that, or would an actor be entitled to, to do that? So as a matter of international law, the question that arises is whether or not um, there is a sufficient link between the humanitarian relief operation that's going on and the actor, in this case the international organization, or possibly possibly a state, but if we take the UN in particular, is there a sufficient link such that we say that the acts of those who are carrying out the activities are attributable to the state? That's the expression that's used. In other words, the actions are such that you could regard them as the actions of the UN. Though it's not the UN that's doing it, is the UN's acts of coordination, providing funding, providing other services, are those things such that we can say that these activities of the NGOs that are actually doing the work are the acts of the UN? And that depends on the degree of control that is exercised by the UN over these, over these activities. Um, and I think in all probability, the degree of control would not be such that we would... The, the test is quite a high one. In other words, the test to say that these are acts of the UN it would require a high degree of control. And the way in which these things work, it's not likely that that test is going to be met. So in reality, well, not in reality, as a matter of law, as a matter of law, this would mean that the UN would be entitled to or able to carry out these acts of coordination without the acts of assistance themselves being attributed to the UN. So as a matter of law, the UN should be able to carry on doing these things. And then my Trojan slip will in reality. I'll turn, <laughs> I'll turn over to I'll turn over to Malou. I won't say that's yeah. an academic point. Yeah. What the law says, because yeah. I know you don't like it when I say that. In reality, <laughs> in reality, what has happened? Well, in reality, on the south, it's been actually it's been interesting. Because as I was saying, the, the resolution allowed a number of local partners, so Syrian um, humanitarian actors, to operate in opposition-held territory, even though they weren't registered with Damascus. Once it became evident that um, the government of, of Syria was going to regain control, um, UN agencies, NGOs from outside spoke to their local partners, and it was agreed that it would just put them at too much risk to attempt to continue to operate unregistered once they were under uh, Syrian control again. I'm sure you must have followed. There was, throughout the response, there were serious concerns about how humanitarian care providers were being treated, medical care providers were treated. It was just agreed by all it was going to be too risky to attempt to continue to work through the same local partners after Damascus regained control. So what has this meant in practice? Not a, it, because they were such a key part of the response, no effort was made to negotiate um, to continue operations cross-border. So even though the resolution foresaw this, even if set aside the resolution, go back to basic rules, negotiate with Damascus, let's see what Damascus is willing to agree to, and we can talk about what they've been willing to agree to. Um, it was decided not to try it just because there were no local partners on the ground because it would be too risky for them to, to actually um, 
work. So that's what the South has been. But it should also be um, a lesson um, for what, in all likelihood, are questions that will also be asked in relation to the Northwest. What happens if there is no resolution? What happens if you have a resolution but you have Damascus up against the border again? Yes, I think it's excellent that um, such a, the duty of care towards local partners was taken so seriously, but it has led to a gap in response. And needs were severe in the South. They're extremely severe once we start speaking about the Northwest. That's where Idlib is. So I think it's incumbent upon humanitarian actors really to, to think about how are they going to deal with this situation? Are they going to try negotiating for relief operations um, with Damascus? What about, even if they don't do that, what about this provision of indirect support and assistance, which as we've seen, they are entitled as a matter of law to continue uh, providing. And that's a far more, uh, it's, I don't want to use the word political, it's a policy decision for humanitarian actors to take. Obviously, it's going to, um, unless Damascus agrees to it, Damascus is not going to be happy that they're continuing to provide the support. And essentially, it's going to be a question of, of balancing, I think, the value added in terms of responding to significant needs in this area by continuing to provide these important um, assistance and support um, for, um, arrangements, balancing that with the potential negative impact on their own operations within Syria. Because obviously, there may be repercussions. If Damascus doesn't want them to carry out these activities and they continue to do so, it might not grant visas for their operations within. It might make it extremely difficult to operate. This is the balancing act that humanitarian actors and senior management need to be carrying out right now. And then a final point is donors, state donors. That's also an important part of the direct question um, at two levels. One is if there are NGOs who will continue to operate cross-border, from the north we're talking now, will donors continue to fund their activities? Question mark. And the other question also to donors is, donors, you were willing to fund operations for a particular um, operations population that was reached cross-border from the south when it was under opposition control. Now that things have changed and the same population with the same needs is reached through Damascus. Are you, institutional donor, willing to fund that? And I think this is very much a question about their commitment to principled humanitarian action, responding to the needs, regardless of whether they're coming cross-border via Damascus. Well, that's it. <laughs>